0: This is Mark, Mark Burt. You might recognize him if you were here last week, because he preached last week. If you don't recognize him and you were here last week, you weren't listening. But you we, we were asleep, he talked about yeah. the plagues and stuff. It was good. Thank you for being here. Mark works for the c to c Network, which is a church planting equipping agency that serves across Canada and the United States. We're so glad you're here. Let Ooh. me pray. Thanks, John. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear from your word through Mark, and I pray that your spirit would speak to us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, well, it's always great to be uh, a guest speaker, and it's very rare that you get invited back. So uh, to be two weeks in a row is awesome. And we are in the book of Exodus, and so just you can have your Bibles open to Exodus 7. Uh, that's where we're going to begin. And if you missed last weekend or some of the series, we'll try to catch you up a little bit, but uh, Willingdon summer series is uh, looking at the book of Exodus, the first 14 chapters, Uh, in a series of messages called Mighty to Save. And so that's what we're in the midst of. And today's look at this particular text, I'm taking it from this vantage point as a prototype for renewal and revival movement. So let me just jump right to the conclusion and jump to the end so you know where we're going. This is my take on this text today, is that it is a prototype for renewal and revival movement. So that's where we're headed with it. Uh, That it is far more than just a historical record For God's work with a nation called Israel. It is more than political or military deliverance. It is a spiritual metaphor for the entire story of the Bible, God's plan to set the captives free, and it also has an application to every man and woman and boy and girl in the room, in fact, on the planet, that God has a plan to set each one of us free. Now, as I mentioned, we've got five full chapters, Exodus 7 to 11, and they outline God's work with Pharaoh, which we looked at last weekend, and the challenge, don't harden your heart. They also outline God's work with his own people. And the plagues that we are going to read through today display God's power, not just to a hard-hearted dictator, but also to embolden and to build up the people of God and to strengthen their faith that their God is indeed mighty to save and that he can move in their lives in power. And you might be here today and you need a touch from Almighty God to know that God is actually seeing and hears and knows your life and that he cares for you and that he can move in power. It's been my prayer that that would be revealed to you today. Now, from a purely human point of view, we can understand a bit of pharaoh 's reticence because he 's been asked to give up a workforce of some six hundred thousand men strong. If you read the greater context, there were six hundred thousand working men together with their wives and children. The nation of Israel had grown to over two million people, but six hundred thousand of them were in the labor force, and all totalitarian empires, the rich and powerful, are totally dependent upon a cheap and abundant source of manpower and so you could Ask the question, who in their right mind would willingly release your entire workforce so you can understand Pharaoh's reticence? And this story has been played out literally hundreds of times through human history. In fact, it's being played out today in various parts of the world on the big scale and on the small scale. It might be an interesting lunchtime or coffee break this week or some visit with your friends to just have a little discussion and go back to high school history class or some course you took at university and just rattle through in your mind all the revolutions that you can think of that have come and gone over world history. The never ending struggle for human independence. Political, military, rebellions, and coups, whether they are peaceful or bloody, happen all the time. Conspiracy, sedition, and treason not only make great history, but they are also the inspiration for hundreds of spy novels, historical documentaries, and Hollywood blockbusters. I mean, we pay big bucks to see these stories reenacted on the big screen. Some of you who read a lot will know that one of Charles Dickens' most famous novels is the novel called The Tale of Two Cities. And if you have read that work of Dickens, you will know that it is set in the French Revolution of the late 1700s. This year, 2017, is a very historic year for anybody with a history in Russia. A hundred years ago, 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution topples the Romanov family who have reigned for 300 years over that great nation, and it is the beginning of what today we knew as a communist dictatorship that ousted them from power and, and ushered in through this revolution. Here in North America, of course, we're most familiar with the revolution that took place south of the 49th. An eight-year bloody battle where then the would-be Americans forced the UK out through bloodshed and through war. And then as Canadians, of course, north of the 49th, we like to pat ourselves on the back and to say, oh yeah, you dumb Americans, you didn't have to fire a shot. Just give 80 years and you can peacefully negotiate yourself to a confederation. And so we didn't have to kill anybody to form a nation. Now, I carry both passports so I can talk bad about both countries. So that's how it is. But we contrast this. The Exodus story is far more than political intrigue. It is God's plan of salvation, God's promise to Abraham. 430 years earlier, I'm going to make you great and a great nation. All nations will be blessed. And ultimately, there is going to be a deliverer that comes from your family line, a seed. And that seed refers fast forward to Jesus Christ. And in a microcosm in this story, we see how far God would go to set his people free. And he sends Moses as a savior and as a deliverer. And later, Jesus Christ is an even greater savior and deliverer, not just for one nation, Israel, but for all peoples on the planet. Now, last weekend, we looked at God's sovereign plan to use the obstinate dictator for his glory, and we had this warning, don't let your hearts be hardened. Pharaoh again and again hardens his heart. This week, we're looking at it from a different vantage point. We want to see how God prepares his own people for freedom. 400 years of slavery. Think it through. The generation that was living in this day had never known the freedom of self-government for hundreds of years, generation upon generation upon generation. They didn't have to write a law, they didn't have to write a constitution. In fact, they didn't even have to make any decisions at all. They were slaves. All they had to do was simply just show up and obey their masters, obey their owners. They had no decisions that they need to make. They had no context for what Freedom actually looked like. They had no clue what freedom was. In other words, they did not know what they didn't know. They didn't know what they didn't know because they had never experienced freedom. They had no context for freedom. It's like the teenager who thinks his parents are idiots. The teenager who thinks if mom and dad would just do life differently, if they would fix things, like the world around here could run a heck of a lot sooner. Every home with teenagers needs a poster like this where it says, Teenagers tired of being harassed by your parents, act now. Move out, get a job, and pay your own way quick while you still know everything. (laughs) You see, these people didn't know what they didn't know. They had never experienced freedom, and God would spend the next 40 years training them up and an entire generation would die in the wilderness as God is in essence writing the articles of confederation for a new nation the Bill of Rights, the constitutions for this new nation. He gives them ceremonial laws and moral laws and civil laws. Why? Because they've never governed before, for goodness sake. They're slaves. They have no clue how to run a nation. And so God literally, in the five books of the New, the Old Testament, we call the Pentateuch, the law, he gives them the foundation, not just for their religion, but for governing a nation. Here's how your judges will make decisions. They were slaves and God had to prepare them. But before he could prepare them to be a nation, he had to first prepare them for freedom. He had to awaken within them the desire for something more. And so there are two fundamental components for the battle in the battle for freedom. Number one, you must know that you're in bondage. Sounds like a no-brainer. In order for there to be freedom, first and foremost, you must recognize that you're not free. You must recognize that you're in chains. You must recognize you're in bondage. And secondly, you must believe that deliverance is possible. And the first without the second is absolute desperation and tragedy. In fact, I would say it's what we're seeing living out in some of the First Nations communities across northern Canada these days because they see their desperation, but they don't see any hope. And so the suicide rates are going through the roof. You need both, not only to see the trouble you're in, but also to have a genuine hope that life can be different. There is a hope for change. This is true in every area of life. Just think through your world. You are not going to show up tomorrow morning at some clinic and just randomly say, hey, I'm here for my chemotherapy. Like you don't go take chemotherapy unless the doctor has told you there's a tumor and you need this treatment. You don't start shooting insulin into your bloodstream unless the doctor has told you you're a diabetic and you need this particular drug. The 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, some of you may be familiar with that program. It has had incredible success in helping men and women find freedom over their addiction to alcohol. There are 12 steps and the first step is this. It's worded in different ways but often like this. I admit that i'm powerless over alcohol that my life has become unmanageable and those who have come through this program successfully and those who lead this program will say unless a man or a woman can come to this point of making the statement and realizing my life is out of control they will never win the battle over their addiction they must first and foremost recognize i am out of control i cannot beat this on my own. And as we look at the people in Exodus, it's pretty clear that they understood their captivity. They were afflicted. They were beaten down by hard labor. They cried out, God sees, he hears, he knows. And the challenge is now to convince them that freedom is possible. They know the state they're in. They need to now believe there could be a deliverer. And like generational poverty or dysfunctional family systems, changing what you don't know needs to be changed can be nearly impossible. So these people desired freedom, but they had no clue what it really meant. And just remind yourself of the context before our text today. And and I I did this last week as well, and you may wonder why are you reviewing a text? But I want to look at it just somewhat differently from the the scope of the people and look at their lives in the previous uh, chapters. They're crying out to God... God, do something. God, would you save us? And God acts. And he calls Moses back from Midian, the backside of the desert, and he says, it's time for you to go home because I've heard the cries of my people and I'm sending you. And Moses is fearful. Now, we acknowledged that last week. He's he's tried it before and he he wasn't received well 40 years earlier. In fact, he was received in this way. Exodus 2, who made you a prince or a judge over us? That's the response of the people. And so as we read this context, we know that Moses is worried, I'm not sure that the people are going to believe me, Lord. You see, the Lord says to him, I have seen the affliction of my people and I am sending you and his response is not just Pharaoh that he's worried about, but also his own people. In Exodus 3, verse 13, it says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? Moses is worried. I'm not sure my own people are going to believe me, Lord. But he goes. Reluctantly, but he goes. Aaron, his brother, at his side, and the people respond. And chapter 4 ends with these phrases, chapter 4, verse 29 to 31, and the people believed. They bowed their heads and worshipped. And you're like, awesome. They accepted Moses as the deliverer. They believed this story. But reality check. Reality check. Pause. As we read forward, we will know with these people, it's two steps forward, one step backwards, two steps forward, one step backward, two steps, three steps backwards. Like it's just this ongoing struggle. And Moses' leadership and his resolve is going to be severely tested, not just by Pharaoh, but actually by the people that he is trying to lead to freedom they themselves will ultimately frustrate Moses to death. Uh, Exodus 5, the Lord says, uh, the Lord, oh, okay, no, Exodus, sorry, chapter 5, Pharaoh's first response to their request is, oh, you obviously have too much time on your hands. You obviously been, you know, wasting time during the day in idle labor and chit-chat and you've been dreaming about freedom, so we'll just fix that. We'll double up on your labor, we'll remove the straw and you continue to produce bricks. And how do the people respond right away? The Lord look on you, they say to Moses, and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand. Moses already is facing his own people. And Moses turns to the Lord and says, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And why did you send me? Already as a leader, he's frustrated. And in Exodus 6, God says, in essence, just stand back and I'll show you what I can do. Be patient, Moses. In verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That right there is worth a message unto itself, if we had the time. A person who has a broken spirit and who's been bound up in slavery and in bondage does not change their life overnight. And even coming to a decision to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, it can still be a long journey back. All the consequences of all their life and all their decisions, all the things that they have not known in the past. And Moses should have compassion on them, he says. They have a broken spirit. They've been under harsh slavery. Be gracious, be compassionate to those who are coming out of challenging, difficult backgrounds. And Moses stands before Pharaoh and he announces God's plan. By great acts of judgment, I'll bring my people out. And in the series of judgments that we have come to call the 10 plagues, God displays his power and glory, not just to Pharaoh, but also to his own people. Because his own people needed to see and hear and know that he was powerful and mighty to save. He was capable, that he was indeed their savior. And so there's five chapters in front of us, and we don't have time to read through all five. It would take us all morning. In fact, I was joking with one of the elders. Maybe what we should do is we'll just read the text, chapters 7 through 11. That'll take all of our time. And then we can say, happily, you're dismissed. Go home. We're not going to do that. So I'm going to trust that in your own time that you will take the time, find the time to read through the entirety of the five chapters. But we're just going to skim over the top and pull out some of the key thoughts. The first is the plague of blood. In chapter 7, verse 17, the Lord says to the Lord, thus says the Lord rather, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret acts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So in this first plague, we see that there is a sign and there is a counterfeit sign and then there is a hardened heart. Plague number two is a plague of frogs. They come up out of the river and they are everywhere. They're in the houses. They're literally in the kneading bowls where they're making their bread. They're in their bedroom. And uh, Pharaoh calls to Moses and says, get rid of them. Moses says, when do you want me to get rid of them? And he answers in a funny way. Why not right now in the moment? He's like, oh, tomorrow's fine get rid of them tomorrow. Moses chapter 8 verse 10, as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. But verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. There is a sign and yet there is a hard heart. Plague number three, the gnats. And with the gnats, We see the very first crack in the Egyptians resolve when the magicians, when the conjurers, when those who are using Satan's power to conjure up counterfeits realize they are up against the true God and they realize they cannot counterfeit what Moses is doing. The magicians said to Pharaoh, chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, the first three plagues, we don't know for sure. The mention is not made. Did it only affect Egypt and not the Hebrews? Were the Hebrews spared? But we do know for sure that from here on out, starting with the fourth plague, God makes a distinction between the peoples. And so the fourth plague is the plague of flies. And in chapter eight, verse 22, it says, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I will put a division between my people and your people. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, verse 32, this time also, and he did not let the people go. Now, pause for just a moment and think about it. You've been enslaved. You're powerless. You have cried out to God. And incredible things that began to happen in the world around you. Signs and wonders. There's a series of devastating plagues that are coming upon the nation. And then you catch on and you realize now the bad things are happening to the bad guys and not to us. Not to me and to my family. And woohoo! There's dancing in Goshen tonight. God is good all the time. That's the first time it was said. God is good all the time. The fifth plague, the plague of livestock. And once again, the distinction is made. Exodus 9, the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Not only do the Hebrews now know there's a distinction, Pharaoh is hearing this. He's like, hey, these plagues are not affecting those people. He sends some of his own investigators. He's like, get over there to the land of Goshen, I need to hear this. Is it true that their livestock did not die, and yet his heart is hardened. The sixth plague is a plague of boils that come on all of their bodies. But the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, chapter 9 verse 12, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Chapter the, the rather plague number 7, hail Hail that destroys their crops. This is an economic crisis. This is a financial crisis. They are totally dependent upon their crops. It is their livelihood, not only for food in the cupboard, but also for making of their living and paying of their mortgages. They're an agricultural culture. And so hail comes and destroys the food supply. In other words, there's not going to be anything in the pantry this year. The deep freeze is going to be empty. And there's another comment made directly to Pharaoh, chapter 9, verse 16. For this purpose, I raise you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, There was no hail. And for the very first time, we see a tiny crack in Pharaoh's resolve. There's a tiny crack in that hard shell of his. Verse 27 of chapter 9, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out to the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Plague number eight is locusts. And the Lord says to his own people, these plagues are given to you as a lesson and you need to remember these. You're gonna teach them to your kids, your grandkids. In chapter 10, verse two, you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I'm the Lord. He's training his own people. He's saying to them, you need to remember these things. These things have not been done just simply as a display of power for this generation, but you're going to tell your kids and your grandkids who aren't even yet born, you're going to recount these stories of how God faithfully delivered you. And the challenge that's given to Pharaoh in chapter 10 verse 3 is, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. In chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he didn't let the people of Israel go. Plague number nine, darkness. Darkness over the land. Chapter 10, verse 22, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. In verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let them go. Now, plague number 10 is the good one. Plague number 10 is the pinnacle of this story. Plague number 10 is, it's the cream. The final and the most devastating plague is predicted. And whoever the lucky schmuck that gets to preach next weekend, they got the good text. Come back. Next weekend is the great, but it is predicted in our text. The 10th is the most important, and it will be the focus of celebration. In fact, this could be a series of messages unto itself, but just the warning is given here, chapter 11, 5, and 6. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. Now that is a ton of scripture. And we have just lightly skimmed over the surface of it and I've drawn out a few comments that I wanted to draw out. And the story is, of course, more than just a people movement of political deliverance. And there are so many directions that you could go in conversation around this. So many fascinating things that you could dig into. But what I want to say to you today is that the story of Exodus is far more than just a historical documentary. That it is a metaphor for the even greater battle that rages over humanity, the war of two worlds. It is the story of the Bible. It is the story of the gospel. It is the story of every single one of our lives, every man and woman and boy and girl in this room. It is this story. That life as we see it and know it today is not life as it was intended to be. Let me say that again. That life as we see it and know it today. So, pause. 2017, summer, August, Vancouver, daily life, walk out the doors into the 27, life as we are experiencing it, life as we see it and know it in the physical realm is not life as it was designed to be. You say, how can you say that? Because the scriptures say it. I mentioned it last weekend that there are only four chapters in the entire Bible that describe life as it should be. Genesis 1 and 2, the first two, and Revelation 21 and 22, the last two. There's 1,189 chapters. The other 1,185 are in their entirety the story of God trying to get us back to the original glory, the beauty of his creation, and his plan to one day fulfill it and ultimately to triumph over evil. And so as you fast forward, you see God's plan to restore and to renew the world to its original glory. And it begins with war. You say where do you get that? Read your Bibles, Revelation 12. There's a war in heaven. God creates the universe. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And there's a war in heaven. And a guy named Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels, poses a coup, a bloody battle against the almighty God. And he and a third of the angels are swept out of heaven with him. And that battle continues in Eden as they come along and they deceive our mother and father, Adam and Eve. And Adam makes the decision to walk away from God's revealed will. And the human race is plunged into darkness. But the story of redemption... The reconciling work, the life and death of Jesus, and finally the hope of an ultimate coming kingdom, the already but not yet kingdom. It's breaking in. We see glimpses of it, and we look to the future when triumph, when good will triumph over evil, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we're all going to stand on our feet, and we're going to sing the hallelujah chorus, and He will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It wasn't just Handel writing that. That's scripture. That's the book of Revelation. That's the song we're going to be singing. Hallelujah. The tale of two kings, the tale of two kingdoms, the tale of two cities, the tale of two peoples, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, good and evil, righteousness and rebellion. And there is so much that could be said on that topic. But let me ask you just one question. What kingdom are you living in? What kingdom are you living in? Because there are only two choices. Now that's confrontational. I get it. The gospel is divisive. The gospel can be offensive. Colossians tells us God... He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. And how that happens, the context tells us, is by God taking the initiative to reconcile us to himself, that he makes peace between God and man. A few verses later, verse 19, it says, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into a new kingdom. And if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are living, the scriptures tell us, in the kingdom of darkness and literally as an enemy of God. That's what the scripture says, trapped in the kingdom of darkness. And you probably don't even know that you're trapped. In fact, you don't because the scriptures say the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbeliever so they cannot see and hear and understand the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, we're born into sin. We're born dead in our transgressions. What do dead people do? Not an awful lot. What do deaf people hear? Not a lot. What do blind people see? Not a lot. That's our condition. The enemy comes and blinds us so that we're doubly blind, so we don't see, we don't hear, and we don't know. And it is the big story behind every other story. It is the classic storyline of every great story. Every single Disney fairy tale that you watch with your kids or your grandkids, every epic novel that you read and reread and read again is built on this storyline. Every Hollywood blockbuster that's worth its money is built on this story. Good and evil, a protagonist and antagonist, the storyline of the universe that there's something beautiful that is being threatened by evil. And it may simply be a chick flick. It may be a romance that's threatened. It may be a national military crisis. It may be alien abductions. It may be whatever it is. But evil is coming against a group of good people. And that evil is beyond their ability to save themselves. And so some sort of hero comes rushing to the rescue. And the movie ends with they live happily ever after. And if the movie ends that way, we walk out of the theater and we go, that was a good one. And if the movie doesn't end that way, we're like... That was stupid. That was a horrible movie. And you're like, why? Because it is hardwired into us, this sense of justice, that evil cannot triumph over good. That good must ultimately win. That even though we're helpless and we're beyond despair, surely there's the white horse is going to come riding over the horizon. The, the, the Calvary is going to come. Somebody is going to come rescue us. And it's not a good story if rescue doesn't happen. And the Exodus account points us forward to the ultimate rescue that would come through Jesus Christ. Now remember, we talked about it earlier. For salvation, for deliverance, for freedom happen two necessary components. You must know that you're in bondage. You have to see the chains that bind you. You have to recognize it's beyond your own ability. You can't save yourself. Like the alcoholic who has to finally say, I'm powerless. Alcohol is ruling my life and I'm powerless on my own. I can't break it without an outside help. And someone will have to tell you, and it's ultimately the spirit of God, and he usually uses a human vessel, you can't do this on your own, you're not free, but there is a better way. You have to secondly have hope that deliverance can happen, and then you're willing to place your trust in a rescuer. And God's people throughout history have ridden the roller coaster of spiritual dysphoria, hot and cold, up and down. Full-on devotion, full-on rebellion. And the next 40 years are going to be spent in training up the next generation for self-government. You may have heard this phrase stated before. Not only did God have to get his people out of Egypt, he had to get Egypt out of his people. You see, God not only had to set them free from Egypt, but he had to get the Egypt, everything that they had known out of them. And so all of the adults, anyone over the age of 20, just raise your hand if that's you, would die before reach the promised land. It would be an entirely new generation of leaders who would actually make it into the promised land. This new nation is going to be built on the shoulders of a new generation of leaders. And God would lay out everything they needed to know. And he said to them, When you get there, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you have been. Don't forget these mighty acts of God. When your cupboards are full, and when the deep freeze is jammed with food, and when the bank account actually has a little bit of surplus at the end of the month, and when you've got more clothes in the closet than you could wear in a month, do not forget. And the people might say, How could we ever forget? And the Lord is like, well, tell it to your kids. Tell it to your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids because they didn't live through these hard days. They didn't go through what you're going through right now, and they did not experience firsthand the mighty works of God. When you get to that land, be very, very careful. Danger lurks. Do not appoint a king. I am the only ruler that you will need. Do not look at the nations around you of how they do government and how they do family life. I'm the only guide you need. And if and when the day comes that you do forget and you do forsake me, I will remove my hand from you once again, and you're going to repeat this history all over again, you will go into exile. And if you have read your Bibles, you'll know the story. You will know that they do just about the opposite of everything God commands. And you will know that they find themselves once again enslaved. They've been deported 900 miles, this time east across the desert into present day Iran, Iraq, serving the Babylonians in a foreign empire. But even then the Lord has not forgotten them. Even then as prisoners of war, the Lord stirs up his prophets and Ezekiel has a vision of a valley of dry bones. And he has told this in Ezekiel 37 verse 11, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. They're crying out to the Lord. So Ezekiel prophesy, preach to them and tell their people this. Tell them that I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I'll place you in your own land and then you shall know that I'm the Lord. I've spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. You see, years earlier, he had prophesied this through Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He had told Solomon even in that glorious celebration as they opened the temple that the day will come when people will walk away from me they will find themselves in exile and he had given them prophetically the solution for that day. Second Chronicles 7:14 he says if my people my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to their prayer. Tell them this, that even in their slavery and in their bondage, God has never given up. Humble yourselves, turn and pray, and he answers. So the people of God start to cry out again. And God hears, and then you enter into the story Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah. The themes are this rebuild, restore, revival, renewal, return to the promised land, worship, celebration. Woohoo! it's up and to the right. And then Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, just literally one generation later, maybe 30, 40, 50 years, just the children of the people who go through all this. And if you want a summary statement for the last book of the Bible, that four little chapters of Malachi, you could summarize it down to one statement and it would be this, what's wrong with you people? That was Malachi's prophecy. He says, you profane my name. You're bored with church. You sniff at it. You honor your governor. In other words, you're paying your taxes, but you don't honor the Lord. You're stealing from the Lord. You don't give back to him tithes and offerings. You don't even give me the time of day. In fact, he says, I wish somebody would lock the doors. I've thought about this often. What would it take in North America if what if Monday morning there's a conspiracy across North America and somebody organizes it and all across North America, every church facility is boarded up, is locked tight, is chained shut, is locked. We cannot get in. How many weeks, how many months would it take for the people of God to rise up and say, let us into the house of worship. But Malachi says, you might as well board it up because it means nothing. And the Old Testament ends with the Lord saying, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And then that book ends with a promise that a deliverer is coming. And it's interesting timing that just as Abraham had to wait 400 years till Moses comes, Malachi, another 400 years pass, and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ show up, and the message of the New Testament is crystal clear. There is a new king in town. Both John the Baptist and Jesus begin their ministry with precisely the same words Repent, the kingdom of God is breaking in. The kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of darkness and it begun in the life and work of Jesus and it will one day culminate when the king returns. And meanwhile, the people of God live and labor and love as agents of the king. Now, fast forward the last 2,000 years, we're covering a lot of territory. The New Testament is apostolic, missionary movement, saturation evangelism, church planting. You read it, it's awesome. But think about it, one generation, 40 or 50 years later, we have other letters, the book of Revelation, just 40 to 50 years later. And what are those books saying? You've compromised. You look warm. You've lost your first love. Just one generation, the church slipped. The next 300 years, it's not explosive growth, but it is progressive. Three and 4% being persecuted, being spread all around the world. And eventually, decade after decade, Hundred year, hundred year, hundred year, at 300 years AD, the Roman Empire is now 51% majority. Constantine apparently embraces Christianity and in year 312 declares Rome as a Christian empire. No more persecution. Woohoo! And you're like, was that a good thing? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Because if you know your church history you will know that with that peace and prosperity with persecution now pushed aside that the church inevitably becomes soft and complacent and comfortable and peace and prosperity and government approval are her greatest enemies. There's a reason the next 1200 years are called the dark ages. Yes, there were bright lights in the midst of those 1,200 years. I acknowledge that. There were many people movements where their faith was white hot and little spots here and there around the globe. But overall, they were dark, dark centuries. And 500 years ago, this fall, October 31st, 1517, we're passing the 500th year of that, a little Roman Catholic priest nails his thesis to the door of a church in Wittenberg and a protest begins against a dead church and the Protestant Reformation ushers in all of our back backgrounds and histories, regardless of the denomination that you come from, if you're Protestant, you'll date it back to this time when that thesis was nailed to the door and these waves of renewal and revival and awakenings and the cycles that have continued ever since. And the common scenario is so predictable. God's people living by God's design experience God's blessing. God's people living by God's design experience God's blessing both personally and nationally. And it just makes sense. God knows how life should be lived. He created us. He wired us. He's written the book. And when we follow the book, our lives are better, both personally and nationally. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation. But over time... Life is so good, and we forget what life without God is like, and we take the blessings of God for granted, and we begin to think that we're in charge, and we begin to think that we have created all this peace and prosperity. And to put it into the language of Exodus, we have arrived in the promised land. Let me tell you this. If you live in Canada, if you live here, you live in the promised land. I don't I think you're, John, do these, are they awake? Do they, they just sleep through the whole service? You live in the promised land. The land flows with milk and honey. And so to use the language of Exodus, the freezer is full. The bank account has some surplus. The kids are doing well in school. It's a pretty sweet gig, this part of the world that we live in. And it all comes from God's hand. But we drift and a new generation rises up that didn't experience the hard days. And they take this peace and prosperity for granted. They didn't experience God's powerful hand of deliverance. And our peace and prosperity, we can grow apathetic and cold. And you have likely heard this saying. D.A. Carson is famous for saying this. One generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The next forgets the gospel, and finally the next, denies the gospel. And you can see this lived out in a family tree. Grandparents who have a white-hot faith, who are lit up for Jesus, their children, eh, eh, not so much, and their grandkids who have never darkened the door of a church a day in their life. All it takes is a couple generations you can see it in denominations. In fact, there's some interesting writing these days because most North American denominations are about 100 years old. And they tell us if you trace the history of most denominations, most denominations are born out of revival fires. God gets a hold of some people and they start a new church and eventually it grows and people are come to Jesus and and there's these fires of revival. And then 80, 100 years later, all the original founders are dead and gone and most of their kids are dead and gone. It's now just memories and inevitably denominations begin to drift theologically. You can see it in the life of a nation. Just study world history. There is a reason that quote unquote Christian nations, although one never existed, have uh, flourished because they have been built on the principles of God's word. And the question for us today is where do we stand on this continuum? Now this is not God's word. I'm not going to quote scripture and verse. I'm going to simply give you my opinion and I'm a guest speaker and I'm probably not coming back. But it's my opinion. It's my opinion that North America is in desperate need of renewal and revival. It's my opinion that we are desperately in need of a new awakening that we're desperately in need of a powerful movement of God's Spirit because the peace and prosperity that we live in should have a warning label written across it. And I would challenge you, your vehicle, your house, your closet, your deep freeze, your educational degree, whatever it is that you're counting on, would you slap the sticker on it? Danger, 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 danger. You guys, why are you such a negative preacher? Because it is so dangerous. Peace and prosperity is the worst thing for the church historically. Historically, because in our peace that God has given us and in our prosperity that God has given us, we can so easily forget and we begin to think we did it ourselves. You know what? You wouldn't have a penny in your bank account if God did not give you the ability to work and create wealth. You think that educational degree was your doing, your brain was God's creation. You're only smart because he made you smart. Those who boast should boast in the Lord. You wouldn't take one more breath unless God put the air in your lungs. It's all from God. But remember this, for deliverance to happen, two things are necessary. The first is we have to see our need. We have to realize we're in chains. In other words, before there is good news, we need the bad news. And I actually think that this is the greatest obstacle that we face in our Western world. That as a whole, our nation, the people that we do life with on a daily basis, do not know that there are two kingdoms at war around us. They don't know. They're living complacently happy lives inside the kingdom of darkness, and they don't even know that it's dark. Because they've never seen or heard of the light. How can you believe in the light when you've never ever seen it? How how we need the winds of the spirit to awaken an entire generation to our need. But secondly, we have to be willing to embrace the solution. So you can be told that you have cancer and you can refuse treatment. You can do that. You can also be told that you are dying of the sin virus, and it is not only killing you today and destroying everything beautiful in your life, but it will ultimately kill you for eternity, and you can refuse to receive reconciliation with the Lord. Now, some will argue with me theologically, but I think he gives you a choice to say, no, thank you, I don't need a Savior. We see it all the way through the scriptures. To say, nah, thank you, Savior, not very much. I don't need that. And whether we're talking about the national level or the personal level, the principles are the same. Personally, no one will embrace Jesus as Savior until they're convinced they need a Savior. Personal salvation stories, they they happen often at times of great crisis. In fact, I would suggest, if you've not sat with your friends and say, tell me your faith story. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? I'll guarantee you this, every story is the same. They're all different, but they're all the same. The circumstances around it may be varied, but they come to this point, I recognized my need and I recognized my Savior. That's what it comes down to. I recognized that without the Lord, I was helpless and I recognized Jesus. That's how the story goes. John Newton, the famous author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, a slave trading captain, And he's in a storm on the high seas of the Atlantic. And as he tells his story, he gets on his knees on that boat in that storm, thinking the boat is going down, he's going to die. And he says to the Lord, if we make it through this storm, I will sell my ships and I will go back to England and I will enter into the ministry. And it's exactly what he does. He sells his ships. He becomes a pastor and he pastors in one congregation for 50 years. And at the end of his life, he's 84 years old. He says, there's all the theology I've learned. I know two things for certain. Number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, he is a great savior. What a great summary of the entire Bible. As we look at the Exodus story, we see the length to which God will go to set his people free. And it foreshadows the even greater deliverance that God would give his own firstborn as the Passover lamb. That great crescendo that you're going to read next weekend, the foreshadow of God's plan to rescue not just Israel, but all nations. But before he rescued them, he had to awaken them. And oh, how our churches need to be driven to pray for renewal. So let me just tell you this, revival always. Revival always. Always, let me say it one more time, revival always begins with God's people. Revival doesn't start out in society. Revival is not about the prime minister falling on his face before the Lord. Revival begins inside the church of God with God's own people crying out and saying, oh God, we've drifted, we've grown cold and getting on our knees first and crying out and saying, God, forgive us for our apathy, forgive us for our sin and Lord, we cry out. And as we look back on history and as we look at our lives today, it would be my hope and my prayer that we would cry out to our heavenly father, Lord, do it again, do it again. And the imagery that came to my mind is like this little child. So the kids we raised and all the grandkids that we have fun with, you throw them in the air and your wife says, don't throw them so high. And you throw them in the air again. And the little kid giggles and says, do it again, daddy, do it again. Or you read a book or you do whatever. And they continue their saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. And that we would say to our heavenly father, oh, Abba, oh, daddy, oh, heavenly father, do it again, Lord, do it again. What you've done in the past, Lord, we believe you can do today. What you've done anywhere, we we know you can do here in Western Canada. What you've done with anyone, God, if you can use those people, you can use us. What you've done at any time, you can do it today, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Father, awaken us. Show us your glory. Move with powers and signs and wonders and might and humble us, God. Show us our chains. Bring us to repentance. Have mercy and bring on revival. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. That that would be our cry. Would you stand together with me? I'd like to pray with you and for you. So Lord Jesus, we cry out corporately. And Father, I know that in a congregation like this, that there are hundreds of people who right now are walking with you and their faith is white hot. They have been in a season of a sweet communion with you and they are longing to see renewal and revival sweep our nation. Men and women who even before this service were praying, God, bring renewal and revival to our country. And so Lord, we ask that you would, like that little child who cries out to daddy, do it again. We ask, Lord, you've done it in the past. We've read it in the scriptures. We read our history books of Christian history, and we long and we wonder what is holding back in Canada, the winds of your spirit, God. Would you do it again? Would you do it again? And we know that it begins with your people. And so, Lord, we ask for our churches that you would blow first and foremost into every place of worship where people are gathering on the weekends, and that you would stir up within them a longing for something more. So, Lord, bring on renewal. But Father, I also pray for the men and women in this room who walked into this room living in the kingdom of darkness, and maybe they didn't even know that they're wearing chains. And Lord God, do not let them walk out the doors without enlightening, and that act that we call regeneration, a work that no human being can do, but the Spirit of God has to turn the light on, has to remove that blindfold the enemy has over their eyes. Lord, let them see it. Let them see their chains. Let them see that life as they know it right now is a mess. That with them in control, things are not going well. And Lord, let them see their desperation. And in the same moment, let them know your solution is Jesus. And Lord, may today be the day of salvation for literally hundreds and hundreds of people as they surrender to you, and as they say, I was once in darkness, but now I understand, I see, I see the light, and I'm walking into the light, and I'm willing to receive the cure. I'm willing to receive this deliverance, and so Lord, I move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I give you my life. I was a slave to sin. I have screwed up my life, but now I will be your willing slave. I bend my knee to you as my Lord and my master. I want to be part of this new and coming kingdom. Lord, may today be the day of salvation for many, many people. May we hear these stories in the months and years to come of people who in the summer of 2017 crossed the line of faith. Lord, do it again. We're asking, do it again. For your glory.